Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, welcome to California Haunts Radio tonight. It is great to be here. Started out another week, inching ever closer to Thanksgiving. Wow, wow, we. I hope some of you guys were able to attend um, yesterday's reading from Dickens' Christmas Carol. I uh, had some issues reading it on Google Books. However, I've uh, gotten one for Amazon. So next Sunday, we're going to continue with our weekly read uh, leading up until Christmas. And we're in Chapter 2 right now. We're going to be starting Chapter 2. So this will be an easier read for me because it's not on, like, orange-yellow background, okay? So, and plus, um, I didn't know this with, with Google uh, Books that you couldn't enlarge the text, you know, because I'm like everybody else, I'm a blind bat. So at least now I've got it on my Kindle, so I can do it that way. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming. we got a great guest tonight. My name is Charlotte. I will be your host for the next hour or so. Uh, I also own the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at www.californiahaunts.org. And the website for this radio show is www.californiahauntsradio.com. My team is 35 strong up and down the state of California. We have additional members in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii doing some work for us. We're all nonprofits, so if you have any paranormal issues, that includes uh, you know extraterrestrial or anything like that. We're more than willing to come in and uh, take a look at it. We don't charge, so because all you know, it has rock to help people. My guest tonight, it's going to be fun because you know it's like every time, every time you hear about this place, city, every time you hear about it, it's always with photos or video of of all the uh, telescopes, you know, you know, and you see them in their own row there, you know, and it's it's just really cool. And getting this, having having uh, Doctor Shostak come on to talk to us, he's the lead astronomer at uh, SETI. Having him come on to talk to us about stuff is just fantastic, and I'm really excited about it. So, um, without further ado, hello, sir. How are you? Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. The the, the signal hasn't been, you know, interrupted by ghostly actions. (laughs) Or extraterrestrials doing stuff, right? Yeah, could be. So, tell me about yourself, sir. Well, I mean, what's there to say? I am indeed an astronomer. Radio astronomy is my background, and I work at the SETI Institute, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and have done for a while now. I've, I've been there longer than any other job I've ever held. So, uh, yeah, that's it. What do you do as, I mean, as, as an astronomer? I, what do you do in relation to SETI? Well, I'm, I'm mostly involved with it. I mean, I do a lot of different stuff, but sure. mostly writing, to be honest. I do a lot of writing. But look, the SETI program is basically, or has been, typically, listening for signals using big antennas to try mm-hmm. and eavesdrop on the radio signals from aliens. That's the, if you will, the oldest experiment at the SETI Institute. In fact, when I joined for the next 10 years, it was basically the only experiment at the Institute. Now we have many more scientists who are working on questions of astrobiology. Could there be life on Mars? or uh, Jupiter's moon Europa, or Ganymede, or Callisto, or Enceladus around Saturn, or Titan also around Saturn, or for that matter, even on Pluto. These are all places where you might have some life. 
mean, it'd all be microscopic, but at least it would be biology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And we're, we're um, no, you know, where the sound is concerned, have you guys um, picked up anything of interest as far as the uh, radio, you know, as far as that part goes? Well, if we had, I think you wouldn't have to ask that question because it would, this be, is a true. Really, it would be a really big story. So, uh, no, we have not. Not yet. Is it true that space makes its own noise? Well, yeah, it is true. I mean, not space per se, right. but, uh, but the gas in space, the gas that sort of hangs between the stars certainly makes noise. If it's heated up, it makes noise too, different and a different mechanism, but still making radio noise. But also a lot of objects in the sky make radio noise. I mean, the sun does, uh, and Jupiter does, and Saturn, and you've got quasars and pulsars and you know, all sorts of objects out there that are producing radio noise, just like there are a lot of objects out there that, you know, produce light. Well, some of them produce light, others reflect light, right? The sun produces a lot of light, uh, an idea that you can verify tomorrow when you step outside to pick up your morning paper. <laughs> so what, okay, so what's a scientist like you doing in a place like SETI, you know, looking for extraterrestrials? Well, listen, my background, as I may have mentioned, was radio astronomy. So right. that's basically the same technology that uh, we used to try and find ET. So that wasn't much of a change. And uh, it turned out that I got a phone call from the SETI Institute at a moment in my life when uh, if they had called, I'd take the job. They called and I took the job. Well, it's obvious you love your job. What do you love the most about it? Well, I think it's partly it's just the fact that uh, there are always new ideas. There's always new information. When I joined the SETI Institute, I mean, you know, we didn't even know if other stars had planets. Well, today we know about a lot of planets. I mean, that's that's new info. That's exciting info. That's that's something that, uh, you know, gets you excited. Also, the development of technology, computers today are so much faster than they were, say, a couple of decades ago, that you can do more interesting experiments. And there are also all sorts of mysteries that uh, come up in astronomy all the time. What is black... Uh, what is dark energy? What mm -hmm. is dark matter, right? Uh, what are fast radio bursts? There are all sorts of things you find and you don't understand. Not at first. Usually it takes a couple of years. Then somebody figures out what's going on. What makes you think um, that there could be life out there? Well, if it's not, then there's something very special about the Earth, right? I mean, if you figure Earth is the only place that has life and none of these other places do, then Earth must house in some way be exceptional because mm -hmm. we now know that there, there are like a trillion planets in our own galaxy and there are 200, roughly 200 billion other galaxies, each with a trillion planets. Now those numbers are very big. And uh, if in all of that, <laughs> only earth is interesting. You know, that's like saying I'm the only person on the earth with toes, right? I mean, I've not seen the toes of people in South America. I assume they have them, but maybe not. Maybe I'm really special. But that would be so unusual as not to be very credible. So mm -hmm. basically, we believe they must be out here, out there. Otherwise, we have to find something really special about our planet, and nobody really ever has. Do you guys look at the um, supposed encounters that people have, or do you kind of dismiss those? Well, I do only because I don't really look at them in the sense that I go and you know talk to them in person. But I I am contacted almost daily by people who have had encounters or seen something and so forth. 
And uh, I respond to them all. I mean, I usually ask if you have any photos or videos, send those to me and I'll give you my opinion. And they often do send them, not always. Sometimes they think, no, I'm not going to send this to you. But if, if they do, you know, I have a background in uh, photography too. So I, I often can figure out what it is they're seeing. Sometimes not, but usually I can. Well, that's was my next question was that, you know, when somebody sees something up in the sky, because you've got all kinds of satellites up there, especially that, that one that has all the, uh, that, that it looks like the, the link chain that's flying around up there. You know, some people mistake those uh, a lot of time for UFOs. So are you able to explain to people, you know, hey, um, this, this is what this is. Or when you're looking up, is there a certain flight path that like satellites take that, that maybe something else wouldn't? Well, you know, almost all the satellites you see from the ground with your eyes are in low Earth orbit. So that means they're only a couple of hundred miles up. They're not very far away from you. And if they happen to be passing overhead, you know, just after sunset or just before sunrise, because they're much higher from their point of view, the sun hasn't set yet. So they can reflect light from the sun. You know, these uh, have a lot of shiny surfaces and very often they'll just sort of, you know, light up for you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if it, if it's a satellite that's in low earth orbit, it would cross the entire sky from any particular position in about, you know, maybe 10 minutes or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. So if you see something moving across the sky and it takes more or less 10 minutes to go from one side to the other, you can say, well, it's probably a satellite. Mostly what people send me are not actually uh, photos of satellites. They're mostly photos of uh, aircraft or sure. Venus or, you know, something like that. Um, I remember when Skylab fell out of the sky. And I remember I live in Sacramento, so I remember getting up at 3 in the morning. And you could actually see it, you know, in some spots as it was coming down through the atmosphere, you could see it on fire. And I remember seeing it shoot across the sky. It looked like a meteor on fire Yeah, when, when it came down. Yeah, I think it landed in Australia to the benefit of the Australians who are, happen to be in the surplus space hardware business. Yes. Although there <laughs> probably wasn't much to recover. So what are you uh, what are you doing for SETI now? I understand, you know, I, I understand that your job, but are you looking for any particular planets or anything like that? Well, we we used to. Whenever uh, astronomers would uh, publish a paper in which they say, "Well, we found you know another two planets around these stars or whatever," then we would turn our antennas in that uh, direction. But we don't do that anymore, and the reason is enough planets have been found around other stars. The numbers, mm -hmm. you know, like forty five hundred or something like that. That's a lot uh, that you can do statistics and you can say, well, it turns out that 80, 90 or close to 100 percent of all stars have planets. So there's no point in just chasing after the latest planets. You just aim at the nearest stars because okay. you're almost guaranteed that the majority of them have planets. Now, um I guess a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, there was something else discovered in our solar system, if I remember right. I'm not so sure about our solar system. I'm not sure what you refer to there. Okay. There was a radio source that was kind of in the news a couple of weeks ago uh, that was coming from near the center of our galaxy or maybe even the other side of our galaxy, elsewhere in our galaxy. And the question was, what was it? Sure. And, uh, we don't know, but most likely it's a new kind of cosmic object that makes radio radio noise. There's no reason to think it's artificial. Right, right. So um, for the people that don't know this, what is the difference between a planet and, say, an asteroid? 
Well, to begin with, the planet's bigger. They're made okay. pretty much of the same stuff, actually, particularly planets that are, uh, you know, in the outer solar system, like Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, mm -hmm. Pluto. A lot of water ice because there was a lot of ice out there when they were formed. And uh, asteroids also have a fair amount of ice and they're rocks. But asteroids are of a size that you could fit them, in, you know, in, in a Texas ranch easily, most of them anyhow. So, uh, you know, they're small objects. Now, are moons uh, determined to be moons because they're in the orbit of, of a large planet? Is that, is that how you guys distinguish it? Distinguish moons? Moons from, from the planets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how do you know that, you know, they're like, uh, what, 60 or 70 moons of Jupiter. Now, how do we know they're moons? It isn't because they have little brass plates on the side <laughs> that says property Jupiter. I mean, it's because they orbit Jupiter and, they, right. they're, and they're smaller than Jupiter. Now, in uh, kind of an exception to this sort of obvious uh, way to define them is with Pluto. Pluto has, you know, four or so moons too, but one of the bigger one is almost as big as Pluto. So is the moon a moon of Pluto or is Pluto a moon of this uh, other object? And uh, it almost becomes a semantic question. Maybe the, the thing to do is to call Pluto a double planet. Sure. It, it, this moon Charon is uh, almost as big as Pluto itself. What's one of the most exciting things that has, has come up since you've been with SETI? Well, I mean, there are always interesting things, I have to say. Right. Excitement, yeah. I mean, we had a false alarm back in the 1990s where we thought maybe we'd found a signal, and that was certainly exciting. But the excitement ended about a day after it began because we were able to track down where the signal was coming from, and mm -hmm. it wasn't E.T., but that, that was interesting because that doesn't happen very often. You don't get a signal that you can't determine right away, whether it's ET or, or just terrestrial interference. So that made for excitement. There, there are always exciting things going on, uh, mostly involving the other people who work for the organization, <laughs> of course. But that would be true in any job. Right, right, right. Um, could it be, you know, this whole thing with the ETs, I was just thinking, could it be because maybe the frequencies you guys are looking for they're on other frequencies? Well, we try and cover as much of the radio spectrum as possible. I mean, you know, the number of possible frequencies is, it's finite. So you right. can look at most of them. And we try and look at the ones that are in the part of the radio spectrum where the universe is pretty quiet. I mean, if mm -hmm. the aliens are broadcasting anything, they're going to do it at a frequency where, you know, they're, they're not drowned out, if you will, by cosmic static, natural cosmic static. So that's where we look. We cover not all of the frequencies, that's for sure. And mm -hmm. maybe maybe we're missing the right one, but we cover a lot of them. And, you know, there've been many SETI experiments looking at many different frequencies, so. So when you um, are doing your research, how does that work? Is there a printout that comes out, you know, like, like with the, you know, like with the different frequencies on there? So then you guys are looking for spikes or how does that work? Well, that's the way it works in the movies. But, you know, typically these days we monitor uh, something like 70 million different channels. Uh, that would be a lot of computer paper to print out. Mm -hmm. So it's not printed out at all. It's just you just have soft software that's looking at what you're doing all the time and is deciding, is this interesting or is it not interesting? And the software now is pretty good after, you know, something like 30 years of development. Now, uh, it's pretty good at saying, OK, this is just another telecommunications, satellite, or whatever it is. So, uh, you know, usually it's doing all the boring stuff, and it, the computers usually don't bother you with the boring stuff. 
I remember um, when you talk about the computers, you know, and how far they've come. My mother used to work for AT&T, and I remember taking tours there when I was, uh, like, 10 or 11, and I remember the computer rooms, you know, the the, the stuff to just run the, the massive computers, and it was like a, a, like, like a three-bedroom house size, you know, where, yeah. where they had all the brains for the computers. And it's not like that anymore. It's fascinating now when, when you look at the difference in the technology. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, you know, my cell phone has more compute power than, you know, the... <laughs> The university I used to work for a long time ago. I mean, that's that's just the case. But that's that's uh, due to the developments here in the Silicon Valley because every two years they double the amount of compute power mm-hmm. you can get into any particular size. So it's uh, yes, it's exactly what you say. It's truly astounding. Well, look at the space shuttle too. Towards the end of the program, a lot of the home computers had had, had more power than what was on the space shuttle. Oh yeah. Well, anything you put into space is probably five or maybe even 10 years out of date because there's this long cycle of designing it, building it, launching it, and so forth. So uh, anything we have in space is old technology. What do you say to people that kind of want to get into astronomy and just don't quite know how to do it or what to do? Well, it's not hard to know what to do. I mean, uh, nobody told me what to do. Uh, <laughs> you, you just go to school and you study You study the subject, right? Most importantly in uh, graduate school. Undergraduate mm-hmm. school, you could, you know, you should take general courses. Uh, if you're interested in astronomy, then you ought to take courses in, you know, physics and certain mathematics mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, uh, or if you're interested in planetary astronomy, then you might take uh, chemistry or biology. Sure. All those are things you, you should probably take. But in, in grad school, you actually get to do a research project. And uh, that's where you specialize a little bit. I used to think it was funny because when I started school, my mother still had like these encyclopedias from the 30s and 40s. Yeah, and I well, used to read. I was really, you know, I've, I've had telescopes. I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got a, a 12 inch uh, Mead equatorial that I used as a camera on there and everything. And I've been fascinated since I was a kid. And I remember reading these books and. And it was just funny because, you know, man, we'll go to the moon someday, blah, 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 you know. Or you get the stuff where the theories are out there, like, like you know, if you, if, if you put Saturn in, in your swimming pool, it's going to float, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, so it's, it's interesting. Offend the neighbors, yes. Yes, yes. But it'd be a hell of a view, wouldn't it? Well, probably not. <laughs> they would more than uh, swallow the earth. <laughs> it'd be kind of fun to walk the rings. Too bad they're gaseous, huh? <laughs> you just walk well, around on that sucker. Yeah, well, in a way, we've done that. We've had uh, spacecraft it. Yes. Went through the ring, so. Yes. Yeah. How exciting is it for you guys when, when, like you say, a spacecraft like that flies through the rings or, 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 or like the Mars Explorer lands? Well, I mean, I think we're as excited as the next guy, probably more so. And uh, some of the people that work at the Institute, I mean, the ones that study the rings of Saturn, for example, mm-hmm. might be even more excited. In fact, they might be involved. They might have experiments on some of these things. I mean, that's certainly true for uh, some of the orbiters and landers that go to Mars, right? We we send a lot of hardware to Mars. Mm-hmm. And these days, most of it actually gets there and is still working when it when it lands. But that didn't used to be the case. That's true now. And, you know, the, the, the people there are interested in, could there be life on Mars? Maybe not today, but was there ever life? Mm-hmm. And how would you find it? And how would you find it if it's not life as we know it? but somehow different from life as we know it. Those sorts of things. I mean, of course you're going to get excited about that. That's that, that's your job. You wouldn't have that job if you didn't find it interesting. Well, I agree with you when you say, you know, we can't be the only planet that has life. 
with all the you know millions of planets out there, should 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 I use billions like Carl Sagan, right? Billions upon billions of planets out there, and you know and things out there. There's got to be something else that that supports life. Well, uh, one would think so. Is otherwise, you know, they're, they're just you have to keep looking for something very special about Earth. And there are people who think Earth is special, but there are not a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing is to note is that, you know, the oldest life that we found on Earth goes back about 3.5, 3.6 billion years. Now, the Earth is only about 4.6 billion years old. And, you know, there was already quite a bit of life 3.6 billion years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. microscopic, but there was a lot of it. Now, you know, that sounds like, well, gosh, the Earth cools down a little bit and suddenly there's life. It didn't take very long before this planet could boast of life, which suggests, doesn't prove anything, but it does suggest that life wasn't all that hard to get started. And if it got started here, why wouldn't it get started in other places? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Out of all the planets that, that we know of now, which one um, excites you the most as far as research and stuff? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't study the worlds of the solar system, so I don't, okay. have, I don't have a hound in this fight. But uh, there, in, in terms of looking for ET, there's a system called TRAPPIST-1, TRAPPIST, like the beer. Uh, and that, it was called that because it was found by the Belgian astronomy community, and uh, they have a lot of TRAPPIST beer there. Anyhow, but it's, it's not just one planet. It's seven planets in wow. one system, and they're all, uh, you know, about the same size as Earth. And some of them are at the right distance from the star, which they're orbiting, to be at a comfortable temperature. So that, to me, is interesting because you can imagine that if got, life got started on any of those planets, it would spread to the others, mm-hmm. right? It just rocks get kicked off and they by a chance land on somebody else's planet. And if that planet is even remotely habitable, bacteria and stuff like that will survive. And so it could be that you'll have a whole system, a whole zoo of biology there, not just one planet with life on it, but, you know, maybe up to something like a half dozen planets with life on it. And I think that's an an interestingly different idea than what we normally think of when we think of worlds with life. That is interesting. And how do you just, I mean, you just talked about this place that's far away. Is, is, uh, is it because you have those those radio telescopes to, to check it out or how, how are you guys finding them? Well, those, that, those planets were found by people using what are called optical telescopes, like your, okay. you know, like your 12 inch. Uh, sure. Was, was it a Mead or something? Yeah, it was a Mead. Starfinder, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 12 inch. So that's a big telescope. But, uh, you know, they were found that way. Not because the telescope actually allowed you to see them. Right. It's still too dim compared to the star that they're orbiting to be seen directly. But you can, you know, see the motions of the star that's, mm-hmm. you know, moving around a little bit because of the gravitational pull of these uh, these orbiting planets. You have to disentangle all six or seven of them, but that's possible possible to do. Well, like with the smaller telescope, and I don't think people realize this because, you know, they'll, they'll pick up their binoculars and look through them and they're, and they're disappointed. But what people don't realize is when you're looking at planets and you're looking at stars, that there is a difference because the, the planet will appear round. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no that was a big thing back in 1610 when uh, Galileo first pointed a really cruddy telescope <laughs> in the direction of Jupiter's, Mars, Venus, these places, and found that they were... They were little worlds. Well, they're not so little when you get up close, 
but mm -hmm. that these were worlds and not indeed like the stars, which just look like points of light, no matter how right. big your, your telescope is. Right. When you were a kid, did, did, did you have telescopes? I built one when I was 10, I think. And I was wow. trying to make, I was trying to make time-lapse movies of Jupiter's moons, I remember. But this was back in the day when it was, you know, you had to do it on film and I was never successful with it. Right, 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 right. This is this is just really fascinating because I've been in astronomy that since I can remember, you know, with telescopes. I'm on my I'm on, I'm on my third or fourth telescope right now. Okay, well, it sounds it. I mean, I as you say, it. you have a, you have a big one. What do you tend to look at? I'll just look at the planets. I, I love Jupiter because with the scope I have, Jupiter's like a fifty cent piece, so you can you know you can see some de some detail with that. Mars is fun because you, you can actually see the polar spot on there, you know, the the, the, the polar cap. And stuff like that, but I also enjoy because the you can see the Andromeda galaxy really clear from here. Yeah, because I, I live, you know, there's there's a lot of light pollution where I live, so the stuff that I'm going to pick up is going to be, you know, the brightest stuff in the sky. So, like, you know, that Andromeda thing's really impressive to see. I, I think uh, actually, being an amateur astronomer these days is probably more exciting than it's ever been because with these uh, electronic cameras that you can put on the scope and so forth, you know, you can make images. I mean, there was some amateur that I visited. He was a doctor, medical doctor, and he was uh, somewhere near, well, where is it? Merced, maybe. No, it wasn't Merced. It was closer to Sacramento. Anyhow, it's the Central Valley. So he was in a place where it wasn't all that dark, but he had this huge uh, setup, all automated. He could use his telescope even when he was traveling halfway around the world. He did it via the Internet. He just turned on his telescope, make sure it wasn't raining. And, nice. uh, and he made these photos of galaxies and so where they were better than the ones I worked with when I was doing my thesis. So uh, it's it's a good time to be an amateur astronomer, I think. It is. But you know what's funny is when I go up to the mountains, I'm totally lost. Really? Because coming from here, you know, because you're only going to get the brightest stars, like like Orion's, uh, Orion's belt and all that. You can see all that here. But when you get up the hill... I mean, it's like one big blanket of it. I, I kind of equate it to being in one of those um, those uh, globe things that you sit, you shake the snow with because that's what it looks like a snow globe. You know, when you're looking up, it's just so full of stars. Stars everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you should move move to the moon. That's what I should do. Think yeah. how clear that would be in the view of the Earth, huh? It'd be real clear until you died of lack of oxygen. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, I, I got to give the astronauts credit because to me, if – uh, going to flying the moon would be cool, but being out on the moon and physically looking at Earth and thinking, man, if something goes wrong, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's not, no way not, back. You're not getting home. Yeah, you're not getting home no matter what. You know, like the, like the Martian. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was a great movie. <laughs> Loved it. But um, um, what's it what's a day like for you? You know, working with SETI. Well, I mean, my daily life is probably not different from most other people's because there's always something you have to do in terms of, you know, keeping the organization running. Uh, as I say, I do a lot of writing. I do some speaking, that kind of thing. And, you know, we say writing, well, writing. well, some of it is, you know, books and so forth. That, that maybe doesn't help the Institute too much. I don't know, but you know, the website always requires new articles and stuff like that. And, uh, the other thing is money. I mean, SETI's, uh, you know, it's not funded by the government. It hasn't been since 1993. Mm -hmm. So you have to raise money somehow and, uh, you know, find people out there who find it interesting to look for ET with, you know, uh, a, a good experiment and are willing to contribute to that financially. 
So, you know, all those things take up a lot of time. You're always, you know, worrying about the, if you will, the daily uh, requirements of the job. And, uh, and only occasionally do you get to sort of sit back and think, well, you know, how can we make this experiment more likely to succeed, right? So there's all that. Interesting. And you have written a lot of papers and stuff. I have. Yeah, I have. I've written a lot of articles and so forth. And uh, media, of course. And in fact, recently, of course, the media of all, I guess since June, when the government put out its uh, report about the the Navy videos, mm-hmm. I've, uh, you know, had a lot of inquiries about that. Earlier you were saying how uh, when people send you photos or, or, or video, you can, you know, analyze them and kind of figure out what it is. Is it because, um, because these things take certain flight paths? No, it's not that. It's okay. that, uh, you know, knowing how cameras work is really the biggest sure. thing. Because, for example, most people these days are making photos not with a camera, but with their phones, mm-hmm. right? And so the phone uh, cameras, I mean, they, they make good pictures, but they've had to automate everything in order to do that because they figured that the person using the phone doesn't know what an F-stop is or, right. you know, any of that. So the phones are completely automatic in terms of exposure, but also in in terms of the focus, right? You know that because, you know, you're, you're shooting something with your with your iPhone or whatever, and it keeps shifting focus depending mm-hmm. on what it thinks you're trying to point at, right? So when people make see something at the, in the sky at night, you know, some bright light going over and they think, I don't know what that is. Doesn't look like a satellite. It doesn't, doesn't look like an airplane, whatever. So, you know, they make a video of it and the port camera, you know, it's, it's dark and it, there's this one bright thing in the field of view. So it doesn't quite know what to focus on. So it focuses on that one dot for a while, but then it, you know, it'll, unfocused because it's still confused and when it uh unfocuses you know what you see is actually the diffraction pattern of the optics in the phone and it it looks to many people they say wow look at all that detail on that ufo but of course Mm -hmm. that's not what it is at all that kind of thing right yeah because the computer because the the chip inside the phone is trying to focus on what whatever's moving yeah yeah, that's right. It, it's so automatic that you really don't know what's going on unless you know a little bit about the photography. Have you come across anything that you can't explain? Well, there are lots of things I can't explain. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're aliens, right? Uh, but you know, almost all of those, maybe all of them, are reports that I get. People call me up and they say, "Look, you know, back in 1983, I was sitting on the back porch, and suddenly there was this thing that moved across the sky, and then." You know, it blew up and it was a trail of whatever. You know, I mean, I can't explain that. I can think of maybe some things it could be, but I, I can't explain it because I wasn't there. And, the, you know, the, of all I'm hearing is somebody's story about it. And that's mm-hmm. not enough. I mean, it's like trying to solve a murder because somebody said, well, I saw this guy, you know, being shot and so forth. And, but, you know, what, okay, fine. That's a, that's a start, but it doesn't allow you to solve the, the mystery of who did it. Okay. Okay. Um, let's talk about eclipses a little bit. Why is there so much time in between like solar and lunar eclipses? Well, yeah, lunar, I mean, there isn't, I mean, they're, they're, they're each, they happen about every, what, one and a half years or something like that. And you would say, well, okay, the solar eclipses, which are, of course, the most interesting ones. Mm-hmm. We're having an eclipse this week, but that's a yes. lunar eclipse. Uh, the advantage of the lunar eclipses, you don't have to go anywhere. You can just walk outside and see it. You don't have to 
travel 500 miles to some location as you usually have to do with a uh, solar eclipse. But on the other hand, the solar eclipses are a lot more interesting. And the reason that, I mean, you say, okay, what's happening in a solar eclipse? Well, the moon's getting between us and the sun, right? Mm -hmm. So the moon blocks the sun and whatever. Uh, and you would think, well, the moon goes around every 28, 29 days. Why don't we have a solar eclipse every 28 or 29 days? And the reason is because of the tilt of the orbital axis uh, of, of, you know, the moon's orbit. It's not mm -hmm. in the ecliptic. It's not uh you know in the earth's orbit around the sun it's not coincident in terms of its angle and because of that five degree difference you know it's it becomes a complicated uh geometry problem but it was solved a long time ago and uh it just means that solar eclipses are hard to predict if you're just you know joe joe six pack mm -hmm. but the people who have done it you know it's all been programmed in computers now and they can predict them very very accurately and uh, let them do it, I say. Absolutely. I had a question, too, about, uh, I know it's been going around Facebook, and I think it happened last year. A certain day, I think it was December, where they claimed the star of Bethlehem was gonna, can be seen, or, or a quasar, or whatever that is, can be seen. Uh, well, are you referring to attempts to explain the star of Bethlehem? Yes. Yeah, well, there have been a lot of papers written on that, uh, <laughs> mostly in the popular journals. And, uh, you know... The one that I read most recently thought maybe it was a conjunction of the naked eye planets. So you get Jupiter and Venus and maybe Saturn, you know, mm -hmm. all in the same spot, part of the sky, very close mm -hmm. to one another. And that, you know, it happens occasionally. And people think, oh, that's so unusual. And maybe that was what they called the Star of Bethlehem. I mean, you know, nobody knows. We don't have any photos. We just have sort of vague descriptions, right? Mm hmm so people looked at it because obviously the motion of the planets is very well known. So you can, you know, take a, a program, uh, the sky at night uh, program or whatever software program, mm -hmm. run it on your, uh, your, your phone or your computer and just back it up to, you know, December 25th <laughs> year, 2000, whatever. And, and look at the sky and see, is there anything unusual here? So people have done that sort of thing. I don't, I don't know that they've, you know, come up with a definitive answer. I don't know that anybody ever will. True, true, true. What about black holes? Well, I'm all in favor of black holes. They're, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're interesting because they're, they're the physics the, what that goes on inside a black hole is completely uh, unlike the kind of physics we normally deal with, right? It's because of the, the incredible strength of gravity in these black holes that it, it starts to break down space-time. And uh, so odd things happen. If you fall into a black hole, not only is it bad for you, for your health, but, you know, <laughs> what happens to you is very bizarre. And I think that that's the appeal of black holes. Uh, the fact that when you get deep into a black hole, you know, you're in a region of space where, where the gravity is so strong that space gets bent. And, you know, that's, that's a circumstance you don't experience normally on your, your way to the mall. Right. So when space gets bent, you know, that's a, that's a real laboratory for the kind of physics that is most interesting for theoreticians to investigate. They want to know, you know, the, the ultimate structure of the universe and the best laboratory is often a black hole. I mean, that's what Stephen Hawking worked on for a long time. Mm -hmm. What if, 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 there, if there actually are ETs out there traveling around, 
what type of craft would it take to be able to do this? Because obviously, like like you say, these black holes, you know, could 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 probably cause you know, from what you're saying, the black holes could probably cause issues if you don't have the right type of craft. So, what what do you see as as the type of craft that they would have to be moving around in? Well, I mean, I you know, I don't want to speak for the aliens here, but sure. I mean, to begin with, are they going to be able to travel from one star to another? Right. I mean, that's one of the the questions that comes up if if you're one of the hundred million. You uh, Americans who believe mm-hmm. that you know aliens are visiting Earth, you got to say, well, okay, they've come light years of distance. They've come mm-hmm. a fair piece. If they've got rockets that are as fast as ours, it you know takes them a hundred thousand years to get here, at mm-hmm. least, right? So that's too long. So you have to assume that they're using different kind of craft. Yes, and you know the most uh, speediest craft that we can imagine, you know, it just takes more energy. Uh, are matter-antimatter drives, where you collect some matter and antimatter and you let them annihilate and shoot it all out the back <laughs> of the <laughs> rocket, whatever. You know, then you get a lot of bang for your buck. And that's the way they supposedly worked in Star Trek. Right. All this mediated by dilithium crystals, whatever the heck those are. But, they, you know, they, they would just call up Scotty and say, you know, hit the accelerator. But they never really explain how it worked because, mm-hmm. you know, it wouldn't work that way. But, uh, you know, I don't know what the alien, I mean, you know, it's like asking uh, the, the, uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, <laughs> you know, how do you think airplanes will work? And he said, well, right. I, I don't know, maybe big rubber bands. I don't know. It just boggles the mind because, like you said, that, you know, they're so far away, yet people claim they're seeing these things. So it'd be interesting to find out what, what type of propulsion system they're using because, I mean, like you know, in all these all these movies and stuff, where you see you know, like these aliens are, are like picking up like our old shows, for instance, you know, like within the solar system, like you see the ones where they're watching I Love Lucy and stuff still because they think that's 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 what we're we're about because it's taken it that long to get there. Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, I Love Lucy, I think first aired in 1953. Yeah. So you know that's uh, almost 70 years ago. So uh, yeah, if they're 70 light years away. They're in for a, a real treat this season if they watch Earth TV. There's this new show called I Love Lucy. There you go. Just premiered. Lucy and Desi. Um, what do you say to people that want to get into what you're doing? Or, or, if, or if you go to a lecture and you're trying to like get kids and stuff enthusiastic into what you do? Well, what do you say to them? Well, I, you don't have to say much to kids. They're already interested in aliens, right? It's like getting kids interested in dinosaurs. You don't have to go to a whole lot of trouble. So, uh, you know, that that's not the issue. It, uh, I mean, you, it, it's useful to maybe address some of the questions they already have, which is, you know, what about flying saucers? Did the aliens really visit Roswell, New Mexico? I think, things like that. They ask questions. And kids are great audiences because to begin with, from their point of view, anything's possible. And secondly, they're very honest. If they think you're being boring, you know, they just go to sleep on their desks. So uh, I, I recommend <laughs> for everyone to, if you're a public speaker, talk to kids, you know, first, or maybe not first, but, you know. Uh, but you don't, you don't have to get them interested in aliens. You have to answer their questions because that's what they're really interested in. I mean, sure. not like adults. Adults ask questions it's mostly men because they're trying to impress the other men in the audience. They don't really, I, I don't, I don't have the feeling that they really care about the answer, but kids do care about the answer. How powerful is the, uh, 
sound waves that that, that are leaving those the, 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 those SETI units. Sound waves. Yeah, or you know the, the the sound that they're projecting out. How powerful is that? Oh well, we don't we don't talk to anybody, and of okay. course it's radio, not sound. Because oh, sorry, yeah, radio. I was trying to get the right word. Spaces, spaces. Is, uh, <laughs> radio. Very, yeah, not very good for sound. Now we don't broadcast. We leave okay. that we leave that to NBC. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but how powerful? I mean, for those things to be receiving, you know, radio, you know, broadcasting from from, from the satellites and stuff. How powerful do those things have to be? Well, it depends on how good the receiving setup is that the aliens okay. have, right? I mean, some people think, oh, well, you know, you can broadcast a signal to them, uh, but, you know, it'll never really get there because the signal will just fade to nothingness between here and there. Right. No, it, it's true. It gets weaker. Of course it gets weaker. It's like, you know, you have a flashlight or a laser pointer. You can point it at the moon, but you won't see a big red spot on the moon because, you know, the the uh, energy density, the, the flux of this thing gets weaker with distance, okay? But it isn't that if you were standing on the moon, you couldn't see that laser pointer if you had a big enough telescope. So the, the question for the aliens is, if they really want to watch I Love Lucy, they just have to have the, <laughs> the mother of all antennas, uh, you know? But then again, I mean, we've had radio for a hundred years and we have uh -huh. some pretty pretty big antennas. So if they've had radio for a million years, maybe it's a high school science fair project for them to build a setup that could pick up our TV. What, what's really questionable is would they want to watch it? But Right, 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 right. And another question I have too is if if, if, you, if you get a transmission in, do all of you guys, I, mean, I don't know how many astronomers are at, at your facility, but I mean, does everybody sit down and discuss the possibilities of what it could be or, or how's that work? Well, I mean, there have only been a couple of instances where we picked up a signal that looked uh, convincing enough that anybody even got a phone call about it. Mm -hmm. But that but that did happen once. And it's true. I mean, everybody was interested, of course. So everybody was looking at the computers and looking at the numbers that were parading across the screen. And, you know, of course, they're discussing, well, what do you think it is? I mean, you know, how are we going to verify that this is really ET? And, uh, you know, I mean, people have thought about that beforehand, but you have to really do it. And then somebody, actually, that particular instance in 1997 was worked out when one of the people at the Institute looked up the frequencies for all the satellites, you know, that were up in the right position when we got this signal and found a good match with one of those satellites. And then, you know, it was such a good match that it couldn't have been coincidence. And so that, at that point, we knew what we had found, and it wasn't ET; it mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, some European satellite. In fact, that's it's just uh, it just interests me that you guys have you, you guys have the knowledge to do that. Well, you I know, mean, to be able to tell it is. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I don't know that with knowledge, but it was in incentive, and uh, this guy did the right thing. He looked through the tables of frequencies for for satellites. It's like, like identifying Bigfoot, you know, how do you, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, identify Bigfoot. Um, well, like I said earlier, I just wonder, you know, if they're like, you know, when you, when you think like, we'll talk, like we were talking about Star Trek earlier, like when they, when they contacted V'ger, God forbid, and yet when they were trying to communicate with it, it was on an old, old frequency that, 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 that they had to come up with. And I just wonder if, you know, 
if SETI's going to run into anything like that, you know, try, trying to hear these sounds, if it's some frequency that maybe you guys don't cover or something that they're trying, they're, they're trying to talk to us, but you guys can't, you guys can't listen. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. But, you know, if somebody were trying to find Homo sapiens here on planet Earth and pointed their antennas here, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, there's just a wide, wide range of frequencies because we use them all, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, that, that's why we have the FCC, because they have to assign in international uh, organizations as well. They have to sort of parcel out these frequencies because, you know, it's it's like water, right? You have to sort mm -hmm. of apportion where it all goes because you have a finite resource. And that's true of the radio spectrum too. So you could listen at almost any frequency and hear something. It might be right. shortwave radio. It might be I Love Lucy. It might be reality <laughs> television. It might be AM radio. There's, there's something at essentially every frequency, radar, right? We, we use these, as much of the spectrum as we can. So uh, I don't worry too much that we're listening at the wrong frequency. Well, it makes you think, too, because if people are actually seeing, you know, th th these craft and they're being abducted or whatever, obviously they, they've been here enough times to know what frequencies we're, that we have. Are, are you talking about, you know, the UFOs? Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, these people that, that claim to be abducted and all this, oh. obviously they, they, they've been back and forth enough to know what frequencies we have here on Earth. Well, yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, maybe maybe what you're saying there is that if uh, we really are being visited, that they would broadcast something for us. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe they would, or maybe they're just radio silent, and maybe they're just shy. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but I do think that if they were really here, you know, it wouldn't just be the subject of uh, discussion on the radio late at night. I mean, it would be pretty obvious to everybody. Right. Uh, if we were really being visited. But to begin with, you know, you couldn't catch that next Southwest flight to Los Angeles because the FAA would say, look, there's some unidentified craft in our airspace, and it's too dangerous for commercial fly, uh, fl flights to take off. But they don't say that. <laughs> How did you feel about the, um, like, like earlier you mentioned it, you know, that, that recent re release by the government about what the, the Navy saw? How do you feel about that? Well, you know, if you go online, it's pretty trivial to find explanations for all of those videos that have mm -hmm. nothing to do with aliens, right? They're, you're looking at other aircraft or you're looking at whatever. So uh, it, what surprised me about that report is it said in 144 cases, we could not figure out what was going on. And that included, my understanding was, it included those three videos that were, you know, uh, on everybody's uh, computer in, uh, well, beginning in 2017. So they could explain them, but somehow the the intelligence departments or the intelligence agencies that wrote that report, that eight-page report, they could not explain it, which made me think, gosh, this just shows that they ought to outsource all these investigations to the web because there are plenty of people out there who could figure out what they were. But, uh, you know, the, the report didn't even mention the possibility that these uh, videos had anything to do with extraterrestrials. That wasn't an, an, an admitted possibility. So the upshot of that is that the people who still think we're, we're being visited are convinced, presumably, more than ever, that the government's just covering up. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a very convenient explanation because you can never disprove it. You can say whatever you want, but if they say it's all being covered up, then, well, yeah, I, I guess that could be, but it doesn't, doesn't help you any, but it's, it's a, it's a good, good way to explain things. You know, I, I, and one thing I can honestly say is that when when I hear SETI Institute, 
you guys are the first thing I think about with with extraterrestrials and stuff. That's the first thing I think about. Is, oh, it's SETI. Well, oh yeah. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> We've actually been, in, you know, sometimes SETI is mentioned in the movies, mm -hmm. and I think that that probably helps. And, and of course, Contact, you know, it was kind of what we do. But then Contact was a a book written by Carl Sagan, and he knew something about SETI. So for everybody that came in late a little bit, can you tell everybody what SETI does exactly? Yeah, well, SETI runs these experiments to try and find life elsewhere. Now, these days, the majority of the scientists at the SETI Institute are looking for life on Mars, Europa, Enceladus, you know, Ganymede, Callisto, uh, you know, nearby worlds where there might be life because we can get to those worlds with our rockets. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking for intelligence, I think it's safe to say that humans are the most intelligent things in our solar system. You, you may not believe it when you consider your neighbors, but it is clearly the case, right? There may be life elsewhere in the solar system, but if so, it's going to be very simple life, right? Because it's, you know, from all sorts of considerations. But that doesn't mean that the uh, trillion other planets in the galaxy are all devoid of intelligence, right. right? So we think that it might be out there. And the way we try and find it is obviously not by going there. We can't do that. But we can point antennas in their direction or uh, various light sensing devices to look for flashing lasers. Maybe they have big lasers that they're using to propel their spacecraft around. Mm -hmm. We might see that. Or the radio experiments, which are the bulk of them so far, it's just trying to pick up something on the radio. Hey, this is a signal that's made by a transmitter somewhere. What type of noise do planets make? Well, planets are not great radio emitters unless they have a strong magnetic field. And so the, the Earth makes a lot of, you know, uh, radio noise. Uh, and you can hear it just sounds like static. A lot of it just sounds like what's called white noise. So if mm -hmm. you turn on your kitchen faucet, You'll, what you hear is white noise, not terribly interesting. You probably don't spend a lot of time listening to your kitchen faucet. Or, or if you do, you should probably get some sort of professional help. Yes. But, but, you know, the sun makes a lot of radio static because it's got all this hot gas and magnetic fields. And, uh, you know, if you listen to it, it's, it's static. But it's static. They sort of, you know, it, it moves around a little bit. But uh, it's not terribly interesting. The only interesting things to listen to uh, in terms of their radio emission in nature are the pulsars because okay. the pulsars are, you know, they're these rotating dead stars and the first ones sort of pulsed every second. So you hear you know, like a clock, right? But they're pulsars that, you know, they click a thousand times a second or more. And then it just sounds like a tone beep, right? Uh, so if you go again online, you can find, audio recordings of pulsars, and, and they're quite interesting, actually. I've had contact with some musicians who uh, want to, you know, score something against these pulsars. That's interesting. What about black holes? What, what, what noise do they make? Well, the black holes themselves don't make any noise because nothing can get out of a black hole. Okay. But, um, but when they're eating something, and they're often eating something, you know, nearby stars or whatever, they swirl in, you get all this hot gas. And that makes noise too, but again, it sounds like your kitchen faucet. Okay, is it true? And I had heard years ago, like I said, I had old encyclopedias growing up, that you know, there's usually stars are lined up in, in like threes, where, where you'll have the the bright one, and then and then there's stuff behind it. 
Uh, you got to say that again. I'm not quite understanding. Well, like you'll have a star that's that's like in the front, and then and then there's stars behind it, like right directly behind it. Well, I mean, you could have that situation. Okay. Right. I mean, you could. It's like, I don't know, standing at the at the bottom <laughs> of of the stands at a football game. You see all these people, and in yeah. some cases they line up. Uh, that happens with stars too. And what's interesting about that? I mean, in general, you'd say that's not very interesting, but it might be interesting because stars are massive enough to bend light. And so they can bend the light from the star behind them. Uh, galaxies do that too, actually. And then you get some strange effects. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, you can use a star as a telescope because of this. Mm -hmm. right? We could use the sun as a very, very powerful telescope. The only thing is you have to get out to the place, uh, the nearest place where you can use the sun as a telescope because of the focus. Uh, is, um, what is it? It's like 55 uh, billion miles out. Now, to give you scale, you know, Pluto is typically like 3 billion, whatever it is. Sure. So this is a lot farther than Pluto. It's not impossible to build a rocket to go out there and use the sun as a telescope, but, you know, you can only look in one direction because the right. line between you and the sun is only in one direction. Sure. Oh, the other question I had, too, is what about diff different colored stars? Like, you know, like Taurus the bull kind of has a yellowish look to it. What causes the, the, the different colors? Well, the stars, the Taurus, the Taurus is a constellation. So, of course, it's made of many stars. Okay. But the thing that determines the color of a star is very simple. It's how big it is. Because okay. the, the bigger it is, the hotter it is. And the hotter it is, the bluer it is. Now, there's okay. some interesting exceptions here. But that's generally the case. So the dimmest stars, which are, you know, small ones, they tend to be sort of dull red, right? Mm -hmm. You heat them up a little bit and they get kind of yellow like the sun. And when you get to the hotter ones, they're, they're definitely blue. So when you look out, most people look at the stars and don't see the colors, but you probably mm -hmm. do because you've used a telescope long enough. Yeah. And, and, and a telescope helps too, because you get more light. But if you're looking at different, seeing different colors, you're just seeing different temperatures of stars. Usually that's what it is. That's interesting. I'm yeah, learning was, so much today. Yeah. Well, that was all worked out about 100 years ago, <laughs> actually. There was a, a thesis done by a woman by the name of Cecilia Payne Kaposchkin. And she worked out ex exactly, you know, what you could learn by looking at stars of different temperature, how you could figure out what they're made of. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was interesting because 100 years earlier, a very famous astronomer said, well, you know, we're never going to know what the composition of the stars is. And she showed, you know, how you could do that. That was I, I think it was named the best astronomy Ph.D. thesis ever written. And most people don't know her name. That was because, of course, she did it at a time when women in astronomy were, you know, not not part of the scene. Gotcha. And how close is the nearest star? Well, Proxima Centauri is the name, and it's about 4.4 light years away, 4.3, 4.2, something in there. So, Well, it's not too far. But I mean, if you're traveling, obviously, you're going to lose four years or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's not too bad. I, I had that kind of mileage on my Honda. But <laughs> if, if you actually were to go to it, you know, using NASA's fastest rocket, uh, the travel time is about 75,000 years. So wow. probably probably pays to get an aisle seat or if you put the sleep on there like like they did with alien people start waking up well, and stuff. yeah people talk about suspended animation yeah uh, uh the only trouble is we don't know how to do it 
<laughs> Other than that, it's good. So what advice do you have for people who are just at home and they just want to go outside and, and take a look-see at, at the stars and stuff? How can they do that? What, I mean, is it? I guess it depends where they live, too. I mean, if they live up in the mountains, they're going to get a really good view. But if they're living in the city, I mean, do, uh, are, are binoculars okay to use and all that? Yeah, I would certainly start with binoculars. Binoculars are okay to, to use. With binoculars, you can see the four largest moons of Jupiter with no problem whatsoever. You can almost see the rings of Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> you need a little bit more magnification usually. Even Galileo, who was a pretty good observer, you know, he realized there was something wrong with uh, Saturn's shape, but he didn't recognize that they were rings. But the moons of Jupiter, which are, after all, the discovery that uh, Galileo made with a telescope that had a one-inch diameter lens, one inch. I mean, Can you imagine? You know, it was really a toy, but uh, he, you know, he was persistent. He was good at it. And so he finds these moons of Jupiter and suddenly the Earth isn't the center of the universe anymore because, doggone it, you know, how important can Earth be? We've only got one moon and this other thing has four. And it turned out it didn't have four, it had like 70. So, uh, wow. you know. Well, with the one inch telescope, he had good eyes too, man, I'll tell you. I, I, I think he probably did. And the other advantage he had was that there wasn't too much in the way of illumination at night for right. street lights and stuff like that. That helps Right, right, right. Right. Sir, thank you for coming on tonight. I have learned so much, and I really appreciate you taking the time out. Oh, my gosh, it was fun to pick your brain. Okay, well, that was fun to be with you. I would like to get you on in the future, if that's okay. Just send me an email. Sounds good. All right, thank you so much, and have a great evening. I have learned so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, my. Bye-bye. <laughs> have a good evening. All right, guys, that was great, man. I learned so much. I, I've been into that stuff since I was a kid, and I've had three or four, three or four telescopes. My biggest is 12-inch, and I loved it. I have a camera on the 12-inch, and, you know, I've got a rig so that I can, like, look at the stuff on my computer screen and all that, and it's just something I love to do, so I was glad to get Seth on. Tomorrow night, Gino Munari is going to be on, and he... uh worked at the dunes in Las Vegas and he's got quite the history to talk about where uh, the dunes you know had two two different owners and each owner had a different style of managing and a and one of the owners kind of had mob connections and, and he knows a lot about the mobsters that were in Vegas you know during the 60s and early 70s so we're going to talk with you know uh, Minari tomorrow um, if you like the show share it with five people if you didn't like the show share it with the five people anyway um, we're all equal opportunity here at California Hunts Radio, and we're, and we're trying to get the word out. Our YouTube audience is building up. Fantastic. Keep, you know, keep coming to YouTube. Keep, keep, keep clicking on subscribe because we're going to keep bringing these shows to you guys. As you can see, I've got a ticker running along the bottom about, bringing, about keeping the shows on. And uh, we're like PBS. We are um, nonprofit, and it all comes out of my pocket. So I'm looking for... A little bit of help here, and uh, this is my PBS moment. And if you guys can find it in your heart to donate to help keep us on the air and keep these guests coming, paypal.me at California Haunts. It all goes back into expenses for radio equipment, internet, the service, uh, mics, all that good stuff, and, and stuff for my team, equipment for my team, so we can go out and help people with ghost hunting and whatnot. So that would be great. Also, YouTube. Um, we have 104 subscribers now. We want to build that up. So if you guys can, um, it's, well, it's kind of hard to head to YouTube because 
there's no URL. We're trying to get to the point where we, we get a dedicated URL. I was told 100 subscribers, and now they've, they've upped it. So I'm waiting on a letter from them to see what I actually have to have to put a dedicated URL out there. Because if you try to Google us or whatever, you're not going to find us. And just not. So you need to go to our website for that. Go to www.californiahauntsradio.com and go to our website and click on the video on, on the front page and that will take you over to YouTube and you, you can subscribe from there. I, you know, The more subscribers we have, the more popular the show is going to get and we're building up. In fact, we're starting up. We're going to be uh, airing on iHeartRadio starting tomorrow. So I'm real excited about that and I'm waiting from um, TuneIn also to get the okay from them. For the show, so I'm getting really, you know, everything, everything's happening, everything's happening. But I want to thank you guys for coming. And remember, if you guys want to go see what Seth does, head over to SETI's website. Just type in SETI, S-E-T-I. It'll take you right to the website. But I thank you guys for coming, and I will see you guys. I will see you tomorrow at the same time, 6:30 p.m. Pacific. And let me queue up my my little thingies here. And thank you very much, and see you tomorrow.